Hello, friends. It's good to see you. Welcome to Topic Discuss, where you give me a topic and I'll discuss it with a critical thinking lens. Tonight's episode is another awesome um, episode with Brad Plotho, where we dive into the concept of socialism versus capitalism. And what we end up talking about is not what you are going to think. So uh, buckle up, buttercups. It's another episode of Topic Discuss. Hi, Brad. How are you? Good, Gary. How are you doing? Good to have you on the show again. Always a pleasure for me and uh, glad to be here. Love what you're doing with the show and always flattered to, to be chatting with you. And I, I want to do a shout out to Roger Plotho, who is your father. I think people uh, found him to be intriguing and pretty cool. So for those who are want to make the connection, Roger is Brad's dad. So I, I can hear that in your voices, right? You've inherited your dad's deep, uh, smooth voice. <laughs> I would say he's got me beat there. Uh, he also has a much deeper understanding of uh, th that particular topic. You know, uh, that's something was that we was sort of part of the, the operating system in our house is just how you think about information that you're getting and how to vet it and so forth. And that's been his world. So glad you guys got a chance to talk about that. I thought it was an interesting conversation. Yeah. And uh, thank you for introducing us. And you really because of you that he, we are able to get him, out, get him on the show. Um, and I think that's kind of the trend of the show, of our show so far. Um, I think people are liking that we are, you know, answering a specific question about about an issue with critical thinking eyes. So we're going to do that tonight. One of the viewers that um, that follows us for fairly follows me for fairly regularly asked about the difference between socialism and capitalism. And so tonight we're going to use, we're putting our critical thinking hats on to, to talk about those things. And we'd like to start with first some definitions because that's where we can get off track really quickly. So Brad, I know I'm going to, I think you're better at this. So I'll like, why don't you start with uh, some definitions and then we'll, we'll discuss. Yeah, that, that sounds great. And definitely we, we'll have a conversation about this, but um, yeah, I mean, this is another one of those things that I feel like gets um, turned into a pretty um, basic conversation without any nuance and without any discipline around what words mean. Uh, you know, I tend to believe that um, words matter and the definitions of the, those words do matter. Otherwise, you get what, what we've talked about, for example, with critical race theory, where people start to turn it into, well, anything that I'm afraid of with regard to race, I can package into critical race theory and make it sort of a catch-all. Uh, and the term is um, sort of the, the definition expands and expands and expands. It's like, um, you know, there's, I don't know if you ever saw that, there's a funny kind of send-up show called uh, This is the End. And it's got like uh, a bunch of these um, kind of 2010s comics in it. And they're, uh, the, the premise is that they all get together for a big party. And one of these guys flies in from Los Angeles and one of them meets at the airport. And he's like, oh, uh, let's go to Carl's Jr. because he's just gotten into LA and the other guy's like, no, I don't go to that place anymore because I'm off gluten. And the other guy's like, gluten? You're off gluten? And he's like, yeah, I've, I've stopped eating gluten. He's like, you don't even know what gluten is. And he's like, yeah, I know what gluten is. He's like, define it. What's gluten? He's like, well, 
anything that's bad, like a calorie, fat, uh, cholesterol, all those things are gluten. That's gluten. Yep. So um, anyway, when I first watched that, I didn't know what gluten was either. And I have a daughter who was diagnosed with celiac disease. And now I have a very tight definition of gluten. So same thing with this. So I digress. But um, in terms of definitions, I think, you know, on the two ends of the spectrum, you typically hear people talk about socialism, capitalism. And usually what I hear is socialism is when the government wants to take away your property. They want to redistribute your property to other people who may or may not deserve it in your mind. And capitalism is basically what you put in, you get out. So it, it's a complete sort of um, uh, effort-based, merit-based system where the market dictates where money flows, where resources flow, you own your property. Um, and if you put X amount in, you get X plus back, um, which it would be a nice way to think about things. And it would be very simple if that were the case, because you could easily just tell people, um, go and do, and you'll get back. And um, we want everyone to contribute and um, everyone will have what they need if they do that. Of course, it's more complicated than that. So I, I would say that, you know, for working de definitions, I would propose this and let you come back and challenge us if you have other ways that you want to think about this. Um, uh, socialism is really about the, the community owns uh, the means of production. Uh, the community does not own property. With socialism, actually, private property is a thing. And democratic government is a thing. So you would elect a government, you would own property, but the means of production and um, the uh, the economy would be, would be based on a communal ownership model. And then with capitalism, you have private property, you've got a democratic government, government and you have the means of production uh, mostly uh, privately operated and owned. So of course, we don't have either one of those things in this country, but there are other extremes. When people talk about socialism, a lot of times they're talking about um, maybe the most extreme form of communism, which is that there's no private property and the government literally redistributes everything and assigns uh, everything based on you know the government's interests, the state's interests. So that's not socialism. There is a gap between those things. Yeah, I love that. And I think one of the, the key tenets also of, of capitalism is the underlying assumption that um, because we behave well, there's a presupposition that we behave always rationally. Right. Right. So the, the theory of capitalism um, is dependent upon rational thought. Right. And we have discussed quite a bit on this channel how unlikely it is that humans default to rational thinking. Right. And so one of the things that I've um, you know, I, I had the opportunity to teach economics when I, I was an associate adjunct professor at the University of Phoenix, uh, cool. which is not saying much. And no, no offense to the University of Phoenix, but I have that's a whole nother episode. But I, I, I found that that was a, a very interesting experience because uh, where you're, you're talking about definitions, capitalism is simply an economic theory. Right there, there, you really, you can't say, well, okay, cap, here, here's my hypothesis. Capitalism is an economic theory. Socialism is an economic theory. There is not a socialism or socialistic um, system at all at, at play in the world today, anywhere in the world. Now, I know somebody, somebody might be watching and saying, well, what about China? Well, if you, if you really look at these definitions and you said it right, Brad, 
the out of these two theories, the winner has been and is today capitalism. Um, and and you see that in China, even though you have a communist regime that might own certain businesses um, and maybe more so than than we do in the United States. Um, we own our our government owns businesses too. airport security. That is a business owned by the federal government, the post office. Right. So it gets it gets confusing. You're right, because there's this misappropriation of definitions. When you say socialism is um, a community owning the means of production, uh, that model, I'm not and I'd like to talk about it. Maybe there maybe they that model exists somewhere. But the only places that I really have noticed a community that that owns means of production or we get close to that is when when businesses do that within their own, you know, kind of employee pool. But it, it, it's I don't know of any communities um, globally that that literally own the means of production and, and correct me. No, I, I think that that's that's right. I, I think the, the best way to think about this is that you have ideologies that are that are pure in their def definitions. And then we use those things to discuss what we do and don't want, which becomes a really, I think, not very helpful conversation. Because if I say, oh, I don't want socialism, um, what am I really saying? Am I saying that I don't want the stark definition of socialism to be imposed on our society? Or am I saying, I don't want the government involved at all in the private sector or in my personal life. I don't want the government to regulate industry, for example, or that's socialism or that's communism, which is actually something that's talked about. Like, oh, the government can't actually ask you to, for example, um, take a vaccine to be in a public place because that's communism. Like, well, that's absurd. That, that's <laughs> simply the government yeah. regulating um, the behaviors of individuals for you know the, the kind of betterment of society. And you can argue whether or not that is what, what's in the best interest of society, but it's definitely not communism. It's also not socialism. It would only be socialism if you said, you know what, um, the uh, all of the drug manufacturers and all the hospital systems and all of the private industries are going to be communally owned. And uh, that's not what we're talking about when you say the government might have a role in oversight or regulation, the government might have a role in providing, for example, incentives or tax credits or not for business, which is one of the things that's interesting because people will, for example, praise um, wealthy people who don't pay much in taxes or businesses that don't pay much in taxes for not paying much in taxes because they say, well, you're, you know, you're just doing the right thing by way of the system that's set up. Well, the system is arbitrary. It's something that we decided was the right thing to do. But in, in a very real way, you're shifting the burden for uh, paying for public services away from wealthy individuals and businesses onto everyday citizens because someone's got to pay for roads and someone's got to pay for public services and public works. Or we just decide that none of those things should be, um, there should be no role of government in any of those things. And then there's a question about what is the proper role of government if it's not to provide some basic services. There is a, a theory that you could say, uh, like extreme libertarianism, for example, where you say we're not going to have any taxes, we're not going to pay taxes, the government will have no role in providing any kind of public service or public works, and the private sector will take care of all that. Um, you know, I personally think that that's really idealistic and, and, and breaks down pretty quickly if you take it to any kind of um, reasonable, like stress testing, but 
people do think that way. There, there are folks that I heard at the Cato Institute when I was in DC that that um, advocated for that. So there's a lot of room to to debate. You know what model makes sense, but there there is almost never pure capitalism or pure socialism in any society. Right, right. Uh, an example of this um, in terms of extreme libertarianism that I've actually heard in in my own community. There is a radio host named Kate Daly, uh, extreme um, conservative and extreme libertarian. And uh, she, she, she called anyone who was, um, any, any public official who was saying we need to wear masks, she would label them as a communist, right? And we're, I wanna talk about that in a minute in terms of demonizing these words, right? But. But her context of libertarianism, like no taxes for parks, for example, in her in her world, this is again humans acting rationally. In her world, all of the neighbors, we would all get together, and altruistically, out of the goodness of our hearts, um, build the our own community park that we would put in all the the funds necessary for the community park and we would make sure it's updated and we would keep it you know we would keep it fresh and clean and and you, you know that that's an interesting idea and i don't want to i don't want to inadvertently demonize when i'm criticizing you know demonizing words i don't want to demonize kate daly um i what what's interesting though is is I, when i think about human behavior and I know people in my own neighborhood, and if they have excess funds, I guarantee you they don't want to spend that on a community park when they want to buy a new boat. Yeah. Right? And and so, you know, one of the challenges with capitalism is that, um, you know, it, it uh, the, the theory breaks down because humans do not always act rationally, number one. And number two, um, it it does it does require, and this is why there isn't pure capitalism, as you say. There, because humans don't act rationally, we we have to um, use mechanisms to regulate, right? And just from a historical perspective, you know, the 19th century is really where we saw this um, industrialized capitalism. And really, that's what gave rise to unions and gave rise to socialism and communism, because in industrialized capitalism in the 19th century and, and early, early 20th century, workers were treated like cattle, uh, like they were owned by the business owner. So they didn't own, not only did they not own the means of the production, right? so they don't benefit from the the thing they're producing the shoe that they're making they're not benefiting um they're getting paid very low wages the working conditions doesn't matter what the working conditions are and and that but that model really um to some degree is really the model that exists today I, and and it it spawned unions i know that that's another I, i'm not a fan of unions in myself uh, in the 21st century, but I can understand why unions, you know, came to be. Um, what I'm curious about is what what do you think causes the demonization of 
social the word socialism or or communism or or capitalism how does that happen yeah uh there are so many different directions we could go with that but just on the on that for on that question just to hit that on the nose i i think that you know there are all these complex conversations and debates that we're always having but they always come back to basically the same things which is there are people who are, are trading um, for money and power and influence and position, and they have they have influence or they have um, position and power, and they either want to maintain it or grow it or or acquire it. And there's this huge middle of the of the of whatever country you're in, the population that they um, will be led by somebody. So there are some people who are idealistic, uh, very very ideological. And they're immovable. They're intractable. They believe something, and they're highly religious about it. There are very religious people committed to the ideas of capitalism in their purity, or in, or their, the ideas of communism in in its purity, right? And they're committed to that. And you will not convince them otherwise. There are some people who are critical thinkers who are willing to be convinced. There are the opportunists who are trying to take advantage of the massive middle in between those two extremes, um, and. A lot of people in that middle um, are kind of gliding through life and information's coming to them and they're making sort of snap judgments. They're, emo they're driven by emotion. They're driven by a sense of what they need. Um, you know, they don't pull up very often and think about anything more than kind of the little world that they live in. And I'm not saying that to be critical. I'm saying that to reflect what I see. Um, you know, you, I've talked to people in my neighborhood, my neighborhood who are like, oh, I haven't been vaccinated yet because you know, I don't have any problem with it, but I just don't see a need to until they want to go to Hawaii. And now they've got to be vaccinated. And and, and I don't criticize them for that necessarily because I, I get it. But I also think, you know, we have a responsibility to understand um, the, the kinds of uh, forces that are trying to influence us. And in this case, if I'm running for Congress, um, there's a time tested model of how you get people to rally behind you. And it is that you create a sense of urgency around stakes uh, you create an emotional um, us versus them kind of narrative and uh, you point at the other and you say that's bad. And if you don't stop that thing, it's going to be bad for you in these ways. And it's always hyperbolic. It's always extreme. It's always out of whack with reality. It's always a distortion of the definition of terms, capitalism versus socialism, or, you know, it's uh, law and order, whatever the case might yeah. be. These are euphemisms. And it's in your interest then to convince people that you are the solution to that not happening. And then people double down on, well, I don't want socialism or I don't want wanton capitalism because what that means is something really bad for me. And they, they become ideologically attached to that notion, that false notion, that miss, um, th that sort of misdefined notion of what, whatever they're talking about and believe that their savior is whoever's holding the torch for that issue. And I think that's where this comes from. It's a political problem. Um, and there are incentives for people to mislead and to, I mean, an example of this is that uh, there's there's pretty good evidence now that every talking head on Fox News has to be vaccinated. That's part of their corporate policy, but they've been stumping against vaccines for a long time now. That's not because they, they're ideologically against it or they have any kind of material reason to say no to vaccines. They just know that that's where their bread's buttered. Um, and so it's good to be aware of this. And as we start to unpack, you know, what these things might mean and trying to figure out 
what what to do with all this this stuff and what the conversation should be. My my feeling is it's more about what's the role of industry, what's the role of government, what's the role and responsibility of each of these of a of a citizen. Um, you know, are we just supposed to benefit from everything, or do we have a responsibility to you know the society that we live in? What's the government's responsibility and what's its role? Uh, where do the benefits uh, accrue if certain things happen or certain things don't? Who's accountable for what? It's more about roles and responsibilities than it is about some kind of purist doctrine that will never be true in, in our country or really any other yeah. country. Yeah. It, 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 a word that you've used before that I think um, can, that we could use for this is a fetish, right? A fetish for a doctrine that we that's our favorite thing. Like, I, I can't vote for a Democrat because it, I can't tolerate socialism. And every time I have heard that from, you know, my friends and family, I always ask them, what is socialism? What is socialism? Right. Well, it's, it's redistributing wealth. Well, truthfully, that is not the definition of socialism, right? It's the communal uh, ownership of the production of, of the goods and services, right? So what is it that you don't like? And by the way, um, you benefit. Right. Some of these people in my life that say that they can't tolerate socialism, enjoy the benefits of Social Security and Medicare. And um, they will then tell me, well, I paid into the Medicare system. You did. You paid into the Medicare system in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s and the 90s when and what you paid into the system is disproportionately low to what you use. So you are using more, much more than you paid into the system. I promise, right? And um, and and so, but but as a as a human, I want them to have that access. Um, and so I, I don't want to like tell them they can't have that access. Um, what what I think is interesting though is when we have um, rugged individualism that seems to be tied up with entitlement, right? So. I hear this over and over again. Well, I'm a rugged individual. I can choose what I wanna do. You choose what you wanna do. If you wanna wear a mask, I, I, I support you. But if I don't wanna wear, wear a mask, I don't have to. If you wanna get vaccinated, great. But I don't wanna have to be forced to get to get vaccinated. And and, and here's, here's where I, the rub hits for me is when I hear that from people, and, and, and oftentimes they're also not very kind about healthcare and science. They don't say kind things about my own industry, but, they, um, but then when they get sick and they throw a blood clot from the Delta variant that they just got last week and they end up in our ICU, I wonder, I wonder who's paying for that. <laughs> yeah. So your rugged individualism um, failed. And, and I'm going to just throw this out there, Brad, and, and I'd like your comment on it. Y you know, if you've ever watched and uh, on uh, these uh, reality TV shows, I noticed um, there used to be one about doomsday preppers. Mm -hmm. And the, the show, they would go in and they would rate them about how well they were prepared, right? Do they have water? Do they have shelter? And every time they would go in and do a rating, and they would do a rating kind of based on some scientific, you know, methods, right? That you, you need water, you need shelter, and you need protection. And people would have guns galore. 
But as soon as they got to the last category, they would everybody would fail the last category, and it was community. You cannot survive in an, effectively in an apocalypse without a community, right? Rugged individualism is not a winning model, and we don't have anything in our history as humans that show that. In fact, we have evolved to be communal, and we need a community to survive. And so what are your thoughts about the, I feel like it's cognitive dissonance about the individuals who refuse to participate in a community effort for healthcare, but when they get sick, they, they expect the best hospital care. Yeah, I mean, I think it's first of all good to recognize that there is another myth that you're hitting on here, which is this idea of the rugged individual, the Marlboro man, right? There's these iconic figures and this this was really big in like the 70s and 80s in pop culture around this lone wolf who's just super interesting and like cool and serious and they, they go it alone and they do it their way and they go against again what everybody else is doing and it creates a sense of it's reflecting i think a sense of people's desire for not being part of like a, a homogenous community and, and again you could say you can acknowledge that we are part of a society and that requires certain uh, ways to participate in that society for it to, to, to be maintained without saying you have to be assimilated into a society. You can still be a very individual person. You can still have your personality. You can still have plenty of room for like personal expression and doing and pursuing things that you want. But there are bounds um, to where you start to say, OK, well, now I'm going off the rails and breaking down the society. So one, one way to think about this, again, is what's the way that you align the interests of if you if you were to accept the fact that you have uh, industry which provides economic opportunity and economic benefit to everybody you have the government which is meant to maintain some semblance of like rule of law and you know avoid chaos and then you have the citizens as, as kind of three constituent groups like what are what's the right roles and responsibilities the accountabilities the rights the privileges of each of those groups how do they interact together in a way that makes the most sense and just get rid of this notion of um, communism or socialism versus um, capitalism. Just say, what's industry for? What kind of checks do you need against it to make sure it doesn't go crazy so that you don't, for example, have people knowingly either um, selling junk um, securities that disrupt the, that break, break down the entire uh, system? Or um, in the case of the, the most recent pandemic, do you need to provide some kind of temporary assistance to small businesses so that half of our economy doesn't shudder? And people lose their livelihoods forever and, and their sense of identity because small business owners who someone who's been running a bakery for 50 years and it's in the family doesn't go into corporate america after their business shuts down they they can't psychically get to that point and then what's the role of a, of a person uh, a, a citizen so I, I think about this a lot in july every year we celebrate the fourth of july and a lot of times the the, the sort of platitudes that you hear are i'm so grateful that our ancestors sacrificed so that i could have my freedoms we hear the same thing with regard in Mormon culture, um, a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in Utah. You know, you had these pioneers, these Mormon pioneers who were you know, persecuted west, further and further west until they finally went to what was then Mexico um, into Utah and settled this place. And then we hear, I'm so grateful that they sacrificed so that we could benefit from the community that they built. And then in the same breaths, you'll actually have a lot of people 
reject the notion that they have any responsibility to continue to make certain sacrifices or have obligations to do things to perpetuate or maintain the society. So we benefit now, for example, from a system, an infrastructure system, roads, sewer systems, um, electrical grids, all kinds of things. We also benefit from certain policy decisions that were made in the past, like the New Deal, which created the middle class. My family is a middle class family, and we've been able to build upon that uh, because of things like the FHA and in some cases the VA and all kinds of programs that allow people to make money, pass that wealth on, acquire real estate. Some people have been excluded from that systemically over the years. Um, there is also the opportunity in, in Utah now to for me to find a job in, in companies that weren't here 25 years ago because of private industry doing really good things and the public sector really um, finding ways to 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 supercharge that with things like tax incentives. So we have an economic development arm of the, the state government in, in the counties and cities in some cases that provide tax breaks to businesses to um, to locate in that place and to uh, provide jobs for people. And when you think about all of those kinds of connections, I, I feel a certain responsibility to say, okay, this society is benefiting me because of those things that are working. There are things that are not working very well that we should talk about and find ways to improve them. There should always be a sense of continuous improvement. But I also have to recognize my place in the society so that it doesn't break down and make my life worse and everybody else's life worse. So, for example, we have a large section of the of the population in the U.S. that continues to willingly make the decision to to not get a vaccine or not get, or not wear a mask in public, which is continuing to spread the the coronavirus that's now mutating and it doesn't just affect that person that is making other people sick it's also putting like our school year at risk if kids can't go back to school it's harder for parents to go to work so many for example working mothers quit work last year and they're out of the workforce and that's not just detrimental to them it's detrimental to uh the economy uh the same is true if if we have the economy start to take a dip the, the stock market dipped significantly this week because of concerns about the Delta variant. And yeah. so decisions that people are making on, on the basis of my individual right, my rugged individualism are affecting the collective we, and it's going to affect us too. You know, your, your 401k and your, um, your your pension is going to be taking a hit this week because of decisions that are, that are made through the, through the lens of what's best for me. So I, I think it is good for us to think about interconnections and the right kind of roles and responsibilities and the accountabilities of all those different players. Cause it's a, it's, it's kind of a complex organism. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I know that there would be some viewers who might say even family members of mine that might say, I'm, I'm so scared of needles and I'm so scared of the doctor and I have a lot of anxiety and, and I think I can have empathy for, for people in that situation, but that's, that's not what we're experiencing. We're experiencing, a, a almost rebellion against health and science, which which blows my mind again because those same people um, feel entitled to health and science yeah. when they need it. So let me ask you this question then: um, Is it uh, do do what do you think about um, the concept of a government mandated vaccine that's not related to school kids, but you know, just for everybody? Yeah, I think um, the, the 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 idea of a mandate for as sort of like the requirement for certain things makes sense to me. 
with the, the ability to get exemptions based on very clear criteria. So if you were to say, look, um, if you're going to if you're going to participate in in anything in, in public for this period of time, right? We're, we're in a state of emergency. And right now, if you're going to be, you know, in a large gathering in a public place, um, you, you do have to have a, a vaccine because there is a public interest here. The government has to print more money if the economy tanks again. We've printed, printed $7 trillion in the last 18 months. We, we, have, we have massive inflation concerns. We also have an upside down economy with things like the price of lumber. Everything is sort of like wacky right now because partly because we've got so much money flowing through the system. And so the government does have a vested interest in saying we've got to get it under control. And it is a choice. One of the things that's become, I think, upside down lately has been people saying, well, if you want to come out in public with us, people who are not willing to do things like in the past, wear a mask or now get a vaccine, you know, then you just hunker down. You just stay home because we're coming out to play. And my sense of what's the responsible thing to maintain the integrity of the community and the systems that we've built and the interconnections between us is that it's actually the other way around. Um, if you want to come out and play, knowing that we have good science now that says we have vaccines that are effective, that are highly safe. If you if you can get a doctor's note, if you can get a religious a religious exemption based on very clear criteria, that's fine. Um, but if you just don't want to get it because you're being stubborn, that's not good enough, right? You can stay home. You have a choice still. You could say, all right, if I'm not going to be vaccinated, I have to wear a mask in a, pub in a public place. That's still a choice. You can say yes or no to that. If you don't want to get vaccinated, you can't get an exemption. You, you don't want to wear a mask. Now your choice, your choices have led you to hunkering down. And that should be the price you pay during a pandemic that is not only hurting people's uh, physical health, it's killing people, it's filling up our ICUs and, and putting stress on our hospital infrastructure and our medical infrastructure, but it's also putting tremendous strain on our financial systems and our economic systems. And I think if you understand your role in that and you're willing to take that responsibility, we do much better than if people are just willing to say, you know, screw you, I'm, I'm going to do, do whatever I want and consequences yeah. are, are, are going to come and I don't like those either. I'll tell you, I call, I call poppycock on um, religious exemptions. <laughs> That's know, true. I, I, I'm, I, I'm, I get pretty frustrated with and critical of religions. Religion, if a religion can't figure out how to contribute to the community, then what is the religion for? It, it just becomes a politi another political vehicle, right? Whenever I see these religions that, and, and I saw it, I did a whole episode about this on Jerry Falwell um, that viewers can go back to. But um, you know, religions just become another polit a political plat uh, platform and vehicle, um, and they're not really doing what I, I would expect a religion to do. A religion should rally around community engagement and should be out there helping give people the vaccine. Open. Why? Why are we? I'm going to get real. I'm going to preach here for a minute, Brad. Why are we not? setting up our church buildings with vaccination centers instead of making people come in in their shirts and ties and partake of the Lord's Supper, I think the Lord would want to partake of the vaccine. That's like what I think he'd want us to do if, if you're a believer in Jesus. I, I don't know, but I, I really want to see, I, I, I call out to all religions to get your act together and actually figure out how to contribute to society instead of holding us back 
holding us back with science denialism, holding us back with anti-vaccine rhetoric and holding us back with public health. I heard one of the, uh, somebody that is running for our city council in St. George, Utah, literally say she fears God more than health or more than uh, law or whatever. And in my mind, I'm thinking, do you think, do you really think that God is up there, you know, if you think he's up there, do you really think he's up there saying, don't, don't let them make you wear a mask. Don't let them make you get a vaccine or I'm going to, what? I mean, again, let's contribute to building our society instead of tearing, tearing it down. And I want to, I want to continue with that thought for just a second. I know that I, I rant a little bit about religions, all religions, right? I'm not picking on one. I call out from Hinduism to Islam to Christianity, okay? Um, Judaism. So, so in the 1950s, this goes back to socialism, Brad. Um, Thomas uh, Fifield, I think is his name, uh, uh, was a evangelical preacher in California. And this is kind of the beginning of mega churches that were really figured out they could make a lot of money from parishioners. And by the way, we see this time and time and time again with religions making money from rich people. So he, he you know, got a crowd of, of rich Californians to follow him and be his parishioners and gave him a lot of money. And he started a movement that we know today as prosperity gospel, right? Yeah. Yeah. And that really is when, to some degree, the notion of capitalism became a, a religious political um, construct that he then began to say, and I, I, I encourage any of the listeners to, to go study Thomas Fifield. Uh, he had a huge influence on, on Christian communities, uh, you know, telling them, because if you remember, Brad, you were saying this is the New Deal era, and there were religions, including our own, the Mormon religion, that were pro-New Deal because Utahns were significantly suffering, um, right. at, you know, post post Great Depression. The New Deal saved. I mean, my both sets of my grandparents are Democrats because they grew through that era, and Mormon as well, right? But he came through and he had a huge influence on our church and all other Christian churches to say, no, uh, we're not going to take care of the poor like Jesus would ask us to do. Uh, that Jesus wants us to be prosperous. And if we follow the prosperity gospel, which is capitalism, then everybody will be rich, right? And at that very moment in time, Utah Power and Light jumped into this prosperity gospel idea and started lobbying against uh, the New Deal, calling it socialism, and then various leaders of different churches, including our own, um, began to make claims that socialism and communism were Satan's plan. You know, again, not understanding even what socialism is, not even understanding what communism is, but using a religious construct and dogma to you know, to manipulate um, the the masses into thinking that capitalism is God's plan, and that that's just BS, right? And um, so again, what what's interesting to me is, and I think you said this, Brad, socialism 
and capitalism are simply economic theories that don't exist. Different societies and different governments have tried to implement policies, you know, that were based on these theories, but there is no, there is nowhere where these two theories have been fully and purely implemented. And so I agree with you. I want to stop talking about socialism versus capitalism because they don't exist. Let's talk about reality. Let's talk about what's happening today in our government. We, we do have a regulated economy. If we didn't have a regulated economy, we'd have runaway economic challenges like we did, you know, pre 2008. Um, and let's figure out how to work together as a community and shed the past um, dogmas that demonized another group and fetishized ourselves. <laughs> what do you say about that? Man, there's so much, so much there. That's really good. And, and the first thing I'll very quickly acknowledge is you're right about the religious exemption as a, as a concept. I think in my mind, again, ide ideally you think that there would be very few who would take advantage of something like that. And you would hopefully have that margin be small enough that you'd be able to build the biological wall for herd immunity to stop sure. the virus. However, as I as I heard you saying that, I couldn't help in my mind see the headlines from 2015 of a measles outbreak in Disneyland that yeah. was really instigated by Utahns coming who weren't vaccinated against the measles. <laughs> yeah. So claim you're a religious right exemption. That, that we do need to expect more of our religions to, to, to take a community-focused point of view. And on prosperity gospel, and this will tie into, I think, a few thoughts on, um, you know, some of the absurdities around this debate and where we where we should get with it. I got this sort of binary conversation around socialism versus capitalism. The prosperity gospel thing is really interesting to me because you're right that it's 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 sort of um, rooted in grift. Uh, you had the Puritan um, kind of the Puritan work ethic and the Puritan uh, ideology that was really prominent in the 1800s. That was that was fatalistic it was no matter what i do god has assigned me to go wherever i'm going to go after this life and there was no incentive to uh to really do much more uh, and so they were just meant to serve god and so they would they were their work and their effort was based on you know a, a recognition of their their smallness and their the, the lack of, of influence and, and control over the kind of cosmic destiny that they had and then you had a real appetite for a pendular shift in another direction and some opportunists took advantage of that and they said no there's a direct correlation between how much good you do in the name of god and the economic benefit that accrues to you so do more good and more more wealth will accrue to you and that is like absurdly at odds with just read the New Testament and it's absurdly at odds with the New Testament, let alone any other, you know, kind of sacred text that you might believe in. Like, for example, in the Mormon faith, the Book of Mormon is very, very clear about um, the prosperity that they um, of people on the American continent who are following Christian doctrine. Um, and one of the things that you see over that thousand years is something we, we call in the Mormon church, the pride cycle, where uh, people are humble because they have very little or they've been, you know, dominated by some kind of warring tribe. And as they start to climb out of that, they become prosperous in material things. They become prideful. And then the downfall of their society begins. And in my reading of that, some people take that to believe that God is actually punishing them for pride. 
and somehow God is like drying up their crops or like removing their wealth through some kind of like magic pixie dust that he sprinkles on them. And that's not how I read it. The way I read it is that there's a warning and an admonition always that we've seen the movie before and the, the lack of a recognition of the, the tenuous nature of a society and a community and the pride of people going, going lone wolf is the thing that brings down the community and the society. So the thing that is actually responsible uh, for creating that wealth is not the individual contributions of any one person, it's the cumulative contributions of many people and the right alignment of all of the different entities that contribute to it, getting the government right, getting the, the industry right, getting the, the alignment of interests with individuals right, and those individuals continuing to recognize their responsibility to uphold and grow that kind of virtuous, harmonious um, system. But when people forget that and they go alone, it breaks down. It's like, you know, the flywheel stops turning. And what do you see? You see the degradation of the society first. People start to become very prideful and, um, and individualistic. You start to see social strife arise. You see classes arise. Um, socioeconomic caste becomes really pronounced. There become deep resentments. People start to look for ways to pull down power that go beyond the economic levers that they have. And it becomes socio-political and eventually it becomes violent. And that's where you see the descent of a society. And you can just like watch that movie over and over and over again. I mean, the French Revolution, I mean, the, the fall of Rome, all these are examples where people became uh, too fat and happy. They forgot their responsibilities to uh, build the society and maintain the society that they benefited from. And you start to see the descent. Yeah, I wonder about, um, that's excellent, Brad. And I wonder, and this, this is just my thinking, th there seems to be um, a innate, it's innate in our nature to have empathy. It, it is part of, and, and if you want to look at it scientifically, it's an evolutionary um, mechanism that is pretty interestingly unique to humans. Now I'm not. I'm not saying I can't say whether or not my parents, little old dachshunds, have empathy. Um, I'm sure to a degree they do. I can't. I can't claim one way or the other. But, but empathy is is required for survival, right? It it means that we will care for each other, um, and to you know help a species survive. And where that seems to break down is when you know, religions coupled with government, which you really could just combine, you know, historically religion and politics, right? That they're re religion or government that's that's used to, to um, you know, create a structure around in a society, that society will take care of their tribe. They'll feel empathy for their own tribe, but the tribe leaders or this tribe structure does not want you to interact with anyone outside the tribe right mm -hmm. and and so then it's easy to demonize the others um but I, I i just wonder if in our nature like i go back to thomas fifield if he had not created this prosperity gospel idea and disseminated it through the christian communities would that be um would we have continued it's almost like we allow other people to dampen our empathy 
we, we allow organizations and dogma and fundamentalism to almost dampen or, or suffocate our empathy. Mm -hmm. Is that true? Or am I just up in the night? No, what do you I think, think you're right. I, I think you're totally right about that. And I think the first the first place where empathy goes to die is in these ideological buzzsaws that are triggered by emotion, right? And so right now we have debates that don't get beyond the emotional reaction in all directions. And this is one of them, socialism, capitalism, which one's gonna win? Uh, this is the fight for like the moral and like economic survival of our nation. It's gonna be one of these two things. It's neither of those two things. It's a negotiation of power structures and the right alignment of interest between different entities within a society. And uh, that's, that's a tale as old as time as well. Really, you've got the, the tuck and the pull and of all these different things and figuring out what's the right way to, to you know, do these um, do these things in the right um, increments. But also, you're, I think you're right that one of the things that will happen as a, as a society becomes wealthier and more privileged is that you start to see um, socioeconomic barriers become much more acute. So, for example, where I live in, in Utah, like I, I had a pretty middle class upbringing and I lived in a lot of different places growing up. We moved like 17 times, I think, um, before I finally was in high school. It was mostly in the West. It was Utah, it was Idaho, it was California. Um, but because I had to move around quite a bit, you know, I didn't have, you know, the, the, the like stable of best friends. And every summer, like we hung out together and, you know, we were like thick as thieves. I was always having to make new friends. And as I would move around, a lot of times the people who were most friendly to the new kid were uh, the kids who didn't have as many friends. And almost always those were the kids from uh, who were in lower socioeconomic uh, classes or, or they were ethnic minorities. And so I had friends who were Hispanic or who were Asian or who were uh, in some cases black, even though there weren't a lot of black people in those places where I lived. And a lot of times they were like less well off. And uh, so I had exposure to some of those things, although not the same as you would see if you had a much bigger view. I, there's still a lot of things that I was really naive about. And my wife and I just had a, a, a sit down with our kids this week. Our kids are great kids. And we try really hard to teach them as much as we can. And, you know, they're, they're very intelligent. They're, they're very attentive. Um, but one thing that we recognized is that they are they they are they do not understand the value of the things they have. So we, we, they were really bored and they're like, uh, and I'm like, listen, we have a house. We don't, we don't have, a, we have a fairly understated house, you know, kind of relative to, um, you know, a lot of things, but you know, we have some, some luxuries in it. We, we have our house backs up to a community pool, literally um, right behind us. We've got a, a river trail behind us where you can go in and like walk the river. You've got a park right behind our house. We've got a movie theater in our basement. Uh, that was the one indulgence that we had when we finished our basement in this house. They've got a whole room for toys. Like these are things that, you know, kind of the kings of old would go, what, wow, this is amazing, right? Um, they have video game systems and they have all the books they could imagine and they're bored and they and nothing was like sticking there. God, this is all bad. Summer's, summer's terrible. Entertain us. And <laughs> we started to realize Part of the problem is that they don't have exposure to anybody whose life is not within a, a standard deviation or two of their own economically. And so they don't understand that there are some kids who literally go to school so they can be fed. And on the weekend, they may not have enough food and they will literally be hungry until they go back to school. And so one of the things we decided to do is say we, we this is this is maybe bad, but 
every Friday night we we go we we get during during COVID we get we get takeout and we bring it in. We used to go out to eat, but we get takeout, we bring it back, and maybe we watch a movie with the kids. And it's kind of like our family night. My wife and I'll do a date night on a Saturday. And we said, look, one day a month, we're gonna not do that. We're gonna take that, you know, fifty bucks or whatever it would take to to get food, and we're gonna uh, donate that to a nonprofit that is specifically dedicated to feeding hungry kids. And we've vetted the, this charity and we like what they do. And we're gonna just, you, you can go and, and uh, spend $5 at the grocery store to prepare a meal for the family that night, or we dip into food storage. And that's how we make dinner that night. And again, the point of that is not to like, you know, be performative in, in charity, it's to help them understand how other people live. If we just give that, like, if we just give up something, and don't like experience how it might be for somebody else. It's not. It's not going to give them the empathy that they need. I think that to your point, we 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 are hardwired for empathy until we are are not given opportunities to practice it, and right. the, those muscles, those muscles start to atrophy. And I think we have a when you when you talk about the scriptural, um, the the, the scriptural um, uh, idea of hearts men's hearts growing cold. I think that's what we see is that people have such uh, poor connections to people in other stations of life that we don't get it anymore. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And I think I like how you said, um, our empathy muscle is, is atrophying or has atrophied. Right. And, um, so as we kind of move forward, um, to future episodes and we, we think about what we've talked about so far, um, there is kind of an op apocalyptic moment going on right now. We're 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 living through history that I, I never thought I would see, uh, and the kind of history I'm talking about is a com and Roger Flotho really mentioned this in our um, avoiding apocalypse episode, where where it, we have not adapted well to information, right? We are in the information age. We have more data than we will ever know what to do with. We're going to create artificial intelligence around that data, and that is only going to expand. And we've not, some of us, some of the, some of our society has not um, adapted well to that. And, and, and I did not know how dangerous that actually would end up being. You know, at, at some point I thought, oh, it's just these funny conspiracy theorists who think that the world is flat or who think that John F. Kennedy is still alive or that, you know, Sasquatch is a shapeshifter or whatever, right? But but to see that come to fruition in our president, uh, where, where a president of the United States refuses to, um, you know, to uh, uphold our institutions, to uphold the process of of transferring power to uphold um, the voting process and to recognize data, right? I don't know how many times we heard from the Trump presidency that they had their own alternative facts, right? That were just made up crap that, you know, half the country believes, right? And it's the same thing. Uh, so it's dangerous because it, it leads to the insurrection. It's dangerous because today we have people who refuse to get vaccinated who very well could die um, or end up in um, in the hospital. So we have this theme. We're we're in the you know in this uh, incredibly historic time, and I I hope that what we get to do 
together and all of our viewers is to shape a new future. Um, a, a new future that is data-driven, that is based in critical thinking. And um, it doesn't, you know, and, and Roger said this too, it doesn't, it doesn't tear, have to tear down the organizations we hold dear, including our religions, but it has to reshape them and it has to reform them. Um, and so as we, one of the things that we're going to, to propose, I think we've agreed on this show is that there, there really is no such thing as socialism versus capitalism um, in the construct that we hear it today from political pundits. There is an economic theory that you can read about and study, but it is academic, related to capitalism and related to socialism, both. Um, rather, what we need to do is drive decision-making about our eco economics and our governance based on data. I don't believe that you do that um, with rugged individualism. I also don't think you do that with pure libertarian um, you know, uh, gov uh, companies running uh, amok. I think it's a partnership between private industry and the public sector. And, um, but, but when we have elected officials who can't live in reality or they're reflecting their constituents who aren't living reality, then we start to find ourselves in danger. So, so do we agree that our message is, and we don't have to agree, there's no such thing in practicality of pure capitalism and pure, pure socialism? Yeah, yeah, that's the wrong conversation. Again, it's another example right. of, of a massive distraction that is that has real consequences. Anytime we have these these zero sum, bad faith, intellectually dishonest conversations that are that are perpetuated by people who stand to gain from the conflict and uh, not have a nuanced conversation, we all we all actually um, suffer from that. So I, the last eighteen months are a great example. I mean, we. I, I, this is not a partisan comment I'm about to make. It's it's one that's based on just like um, looking at Donald Trump. Donald Trump does not care about the Republican Party. He doesn't. He's switched parties multiple times over the course of his political career. Donald Trump cares about Donald Trump, and he cares about specifically money and power and fame. Uh, he wants to be famous. He wants people to see him on TV. He wants to have money. He wants to to project an image of himself. And he wants to have influence. He wants to to, uh, to 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 kind of maintain that celebrity apprentice um, motif that he had built for a time. And he used the presidency to, you know, people will call Donald Trump a fascist. And I don't think he has the intellectual ca capability to be a fascist. He's he's just a grifter. And that's an example where, you know, through the lens of enriching himself and giving himself opportunities to benefit uh, in terms of, you know, accumulating power and, and money. Um, he, he convinced people to have culture wars on the basis of things that are not real choices. Let's choose between socialism and capitalism. Neither one of those is a choice. The real choice is to determine how do we want to have the interactions between our industry, our government and our society, our civil society work. And that requires people to have some basic civic literacy, some basic critical thinking skills, some basic economic literacy. And if you don't have those things in place, which are really in short supply right now, um, you know, people will pray about the Constitution and the things they say about the Constitution are, are wild. Today, we had a, a sitting Congresswoman talk about 
she can't tell people if she's been vaccinated because that violates her HIPAA rights. I mean, that's ridiculous. I mean, yeah, that, that's that's not has nothing to do with HIPAA, right? Um, no one is exposing your medical history. Someone's asking you a question. There's just a lot of just um, false choices predicated on like either ignorance of the real issues and the realities or bad faith predicated by people who stand to gain. And, and getting around those things is what's necessary. We have to understand where the power centers are, where, where certain decisions lead us. Um, there is culpability for us as individuals. There's culpability for our religious institutions because they, in places like Utah, they hold tremendous power and sway. Right. There have to be, there, we, need, we need leadership. Um, that's the biggest thing that I, I see missing is there is just not leadership. There is opportunism every which way. There is reaction to kind of mob mentality. Uh, someone's got to stand up and lead at some point. And one thing I want to just say for education purposes, uh, if you don't mind on the vaccine and, and mandatory you know, um, you know, policies. So in, in businesses, for example, um, in my industry, we do require, because it's a healthcare industry, we do require our, our um, employees to receive the uh, vaccines, the flu vaccine every year, but also other vaccines like hepatitis and uh, et cetera. But we can't mandate, due to regulatory reasons with the FDA, we can't mandate the, the COVID vaccine because it was approved through emergency FDA measures. So there's another level of rigor in terms of, you know, this first batch of uh, the vaccine being used amongst millions of people, tens of millions of people, and we're seeing really great results. It will then become a, a normal FDA approved vaccine. At that point, um, it then can be mandated by private, private businesses. And I, I want to call out any politician out there who is trying to stop private businesses from mandating um, the vaccine. And, and here's, here's why I, I'm really concerned about, again, just the irrationality of our society. So we have people who find themselves to be conservative. They've always been conservative. They believe that there should be little government intervention in private business. Um, they also don't want unions. Well, let me tell you a real quick way to get unions is treat your employees like crap. The minute you start doing that and you're not offering the vaccine and making it, you know, um, you know, making the, a safe workplace, you're going to find yourself, you're going to create the very monster you're afraid of. Um, so if you, if anyone's listening and, and check your, check your local legislatures, make sure that they are not creating legislation that bars businesses from requiring certain health standards from their employees. It's a private business. If that employee does not want the vaccine, they can go somewhere else and get a job or stay home. Um, and I, I feel pretty passionate about that. And so I wanted to get that plug in there. Uh, before we before we wrap up, is there yeah, anything else that? Yeah, go ahead, Brad. Just one quick response to that, because uh, I think it's a really important point. I think again, if you were to look at this debate around socialism and, and capitalism as a you know binary zero sum you know intellectually pure um, you know debate, and there was a real opportunity to choose one or the other, <clears throat> then 
how do you reconcile, for example, uh, you know, a private bakery that's that's creating, you know, cakes for LGBTQ communities and people saying, well, you know, let's shut that down. Or, yeah, people right. saying you can't mandate a mask for me. I, I'm going to bull rush, you know, uh, the, the security guard at a grocery store because you can't make me wear a mask in a, in a private business. It's a private enterprise. And I think that's a recognition to me that people have a set of expectations that that are in their own mind that they transpose onto whatever institution that are based on their own worldview and their own biases. And it's not intellectually pure because the systems aren't intellectually pure. So would we like it, for example, if you could go to a restaurant and you have no controls over whether or not their kitchen's clean and you ran like a really high risk of getting um, you know, sick yep. anytime you went to a restaurant? We, we, it, it, we have basic expectations that people don't lie to us, they don't mislead us, and that they don't try to kill us when we patronize their business. So there is minimum regu regulations that are required to do that. And that's where you get, you're right, when people get too extreme about this, you start to get extreme reactions to those extreme extremities. So uh, Noam Chomsky, for example, is an intellectual guy who, who was a, an instructor for a long time, a, a very well-known linguist at MIT, and then taught other places, I think, in Arizona. And he, he was uh, well-known for a long time among libertarians as being somebody who sort of propagated libertarian ideas. But what happened later on was he switched and, and sort of like codified and became the face for a movement uh, that was called anarcho-syndicalism, which is basically saying the right of people in the workforce to mobilize and organize and reject the government as having legitimate claim to power you you want to you want to know where that comes from? There's a, there's a great scene in, in uh, Monty Python where they the King Arthur's coming through and the anarcho syndicalists are like doing the mud farming and they reject the king's authority because like we didn't vote for you. Where'd you get your authority from? Oh, I got it from like the Lady of the Lake giving me Excalibur and they just make fun <laughs> of it, right? Yeah. And that's what people do. They say, well, I don't have I don't trust the authority of any institution. The, and right now it's the government. But but what if industry burns you? What if industry you know, creates sweatshop conditions and terrible pay, people are going to look for some kind of countervailing power force to check that. If it's not the government, then people will organize themselves and there will be unions and there will be all kinds of other things that could crop up. And then you also have, um, you know, power struggles that occur. So again, I just to kind of like bring that back together, the, the most productive thing we can be doing right now is, is, is not debating um, you know, purest ideologies that don't exist. It's more about, you know, when we have an opportunity to do things collectively to avoid more um, pain and suffering, like another wave of COVID that will, you know, hurt people's health and, and crush the economy, are we going to do it or are we not? If, if we don't do it, are we willing to deal with the consequences? And how are we going to deal with it? Are we going to print more money? Are we going to let businesses right. fail? Right. <laughs> There, yeah, and I'll, I'll just uh, say this to you reminded me of another, you know, component of these these economic theories um, that are that are really not, you know, in play today. One of the things when I was teaching economics that that um, was really profound to me that I tried to really uh, hammer home for students is that whatever it is that you have we've taught you about economics, whatever it is you have believed about economics, sociopolitically or religiously, 
none of those none of those factors will mean anything in the future because our economy has changed and will continue to change to an information um, and data based economy. Uh, yep. Data is far more powerful and far more valuable than we would have ever have, have imagined. It 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 is this new currency, and um, it it radically radically changes the way we think about economics. I still hear people uh, very um, uh, ignorantly saying we need to get back to the gold standard because that will stave off inflation. Well, that is the that is that is absolutely um, based on ignorance. It's based on again more logical fallacies. But what I what I fear is that we we have a society of individuals who don't even who aren't even willing to understand what the economic future looks like going forward. Right there, there are much uh, much uh, more uh, economic levers. Um, that are not related at all to anything that we've ever used before in terms of economic theory, we have a whole new paradigm we have to move to. And if, if all we do is sit back and, and try to bring up socialism and try to claim that vaccines is akin to socialism and socialism is akin to Satan, then we're living in a world of fairy tales and superstition. Um, and I, I, I want... I want our society to move into the future as we see it, you know, that is, that, that is based in reality. And um, we have so much technology and so much data. We could truly, truly shift our world um, in a way that reduces um, human suffering. Um, and I'd, I'd like to see us all come together to do that. And you can do that. Um, so that's just my, my little soapbox on, um, the economy. Yeah, it's good. I agree. So, so, uh, anything else that you want to share with us as we end? No, I mean, the only thing I would say just very quickly in parting that you, that you made me think of is, you know, with the gold standard as an example, that's another Another example where, where where people are taking something that is a human construct, gold is valuable, and trying to make that some kind of like gospel truth. And if you violate that gospel truth, you know, you're a heretic. And that's what, you know, this debate of socialism versus capitalism comes down to. People are, are religiously tied to these ideas and they don't understand them fully to begin with. And they also yeah. don't understand that they're both constructs created by humans and we can we can kind of pick and choose our future to your point. I mean, Bitcoin is a currency that someone invented that exists only in ones and zeros on a computer. And you can't until, until this last year, you couldn't use it to buy anything. It was simply an investment vehicle that was speculative and it got, it was worth $50,000 a coin. There's not a physical coin. And, and the only thing that, that brought it back down to earth was that people were like, man, I guess people aren't going to continue to put money into Bitcoin. And it just goes to show you, I'm not, I'm not picking on Bitcoin. I'm just saying that these are all human constructs. We, we create the, the, the realities that, that, that then affect our actual reality. Like we, we put faith in certain institutions. We put effort and focus into building certain things. We, we, money is a human construct. All of these things are, but they do have real impacts on our lives. And so 
a more reasonable, level-headed, like critical conversation about this stuff is the only thing that's going to get us to a place where all of the benefits that we enjoy now are still there in 20 years. Yeah. So if we if we close out with what we first said, you know, capitalism and the economic theory of capitalism is fundamentally based on humans acting rationally. Right. And what we have experienced is that humans do not typically act rationally. We're emotional so, beings. Yeah. So let's figure out how to be rational and critically think. Thank you, Brad, for your time tonight. I'm sure we'll do future episodes. Always a pleasure, Gary. Thanks. Mm -hmm.